Oh, what a fun morning, huh? I love baptism. So fun to be a part of this and see what God is up to. And something else I really, really love is when uh, we get to do things together, right? You'll see on our website, you'll see all sorts of stuff called CLC Family. Uh, We mean that, right? And so with family comes all the dysfunction of it and all the complications and yet all the unconditional love and support and unity. And so I'm really grateful you're here today and want to tell you a little bit about what's going on next week. But let me just be really honest. I don't really know what's going on next week. And so we're just going to wade into it together a little bit. Here's the backstory. Um, our church started in 1726 and 1743. Francis Allison, one of the first few pastors at our church, decided to start a school called Lincoln, I mean, New London Academy. New London Academy had three signers of the Declaration of Independence. And as, as he went on, left our church, went to the first Presbyterian church in Philadelphia and became the provost of what became the University of Penn. Le- uh, New London Academy moved on to Newark, which became the Newark Academy, which eventually becomes the University of Delaware, right? So University of Delaware started in our church at New London Presbyterian church just down the road. Skip ahead a, a, a decade, and uh, there was a family that was part of our church uh, na- uh, called the Dickies. And the Dickies had a son named John Miller Dickey who became a, a pastor. Not only to become a pastor, he became the pastor of Oxford Presbyterian Church just down the road, right? And our church was hosting a revival service, and a guy stood up on stage and talked about how he felt like God was calling him to Africa to go and love Africans, right? To move over there and share the gospel over there. And one of the guys sitting in the pews was John Miller Dickey. And he was there and he thought, we can't just do that over in Africa. We have all these freed slaves right here that we need to do something about. And so in 1852, three, John Miller Dickey started putting together a group of people and helped found what became the Ashman Institute. Lincoln uh, gets assassinated in 1865 and Ashman Institute, which founded in 1854, becomes Lincoln University. Right? And so this university, which has existed since 1854, is just six miles up the road. They're our brothers and sisters, and we love them and look for opportunities to partner together. And many of you, many of you know that our world has all sorts of complicated tension racially. And you don't really know what to do. I mean, most of the folks in here, we're, we're white people right? In an area that's mostly white, and you're trying to go, well, what do I do? Am I supposed to apologize for things that my ancestors did? Like, and just trying to wrestle through all the complications of all that. And I know you. We know you. We know your heart. You don't don't think that because of your skin color, you're better than someone else's skin color, right? We know this, and yet we don't really know what to do, and so here's a great opportunity to do something that makes a lot of sense, and that's just where we get to love people really well. So next Sunday, from 11 to 4, there will be a bunch of uh, freshmen moving into the oldest historically black college and university in the nation. And for the last several years, they've invited us to help. Now, last year, we didn't get to do that because of COVID. And this year, they weren't quite sure. And so finally, on Tuesday of this past week, they said, hey, we could really use your help. But now it's on Sunday right? And so they have a couple of shifts early in the morning, and we're not going to judge you if you decide to go over at nine and start helping them. That's okay. But for the most of us, what I'd ask you to do is come to church, hang out with us, and then I either bring a change of clothes or go home and get a change of clothes and head over to Lincoln University. And we're going to help them move their students in. Now, this is all the freshmen. And if you can imagine taking your freshmen off and dropping them off into a college in the middle of Southern Chester County, in the middle of the chaos of our world in the middle of COVID, could you imagine the angst that comes with that? So could you imagine what it'd be like to see a bunch of people smiling and welcoming, going, hey, we got you. Let's help you with this. And so you're going, well, if you're going to move in, I, I got a bad back. I got a bum knee. I can't do those things. And that's okay. There are other opportunities. More than likely, uh, we'll be handing out some water. Not pause for that. But we also know that we'll be greeting families and helping them get their keys and pointing them in the right direction. So whether or not you got a strong back or not, you can show up and you can help. And so you can show up at 11 o'clock. We'll give you more details this week. Again, don't have much more details, but I'll give you more details on Sunday. But if you I would subscribe to our newsletter, you get something in the middle of the week called the everything you need to know and this Wednesday perhaps Thursday depending on when it needs to come out will say everything you need to know about the Lincoln University move-in so everything we'll know then we'll show up and do that but here's the thing as Megan said earlier in the 10 before you have had 16 months now of just responding to what's right in front of you we're a pretty agile place and so would ask that you would come and help by the way if you want to wear a CLC shirt that's great if you don't have one on your way out 
There's all sorts of them. Just grab one. Grab two if you need to. Whatever that is. Grab them for your kids. They're all right there as you head out. Grab those. Wear them if you want to next week. Let's love Lincoln University really well. That's all I got there. Okay. So really, really important. One thing I'll highlight there is this is not kind of the finish line. This is just the starting point of a new year. This is the first of many opportunities for us to connect, and we have not actually gotten to connect much with Lincoln University in the last year. Reverend Faison is a good friend of mine, and yet for the last year, he has been so focused on loving and caring for students, we haven't really had the opportunity to connect. So this past Tuesday when we got to sit down, it was so funny. He was like, it's just like old friends getting back together. It's like we never left off, right? And so there's just this really neat relationship that's happening, and so there'll be lots of opportunities this year, but this is the first one next Sunday, 11 to 4. You got it? Went through that pretty quick because they've already run my sermon clock. You see that up there? I don't really pay any attention to it, so you shouldn't either. Okay, so if you're brand new with us, we've been in this series, really, really long series. You're going to see this up here. That's kind of the sub-series called The Gospel of Luke. Really, really clever name. It's based on the book of the Bible, The Gospel of Luke. And then um, we've been going through these sub-series kind of in it. And so we're in this series called Better. But here's kind of the, the, the big, big idea of the whole thing is we're just opening up the Bible and going, God, if this is really your word, would you speak to us? So if you're brand new to this, let me just tell you about these real people in real history. One guy is named Luke. He's actually Dr. Luke. Luke. He was a doctor, doctor, medical practice, well-educated scientist, right, who literally, real person history, this isn't folklore, this isn't myth, this isn't legend. This guy, doctor, gets hired by this guy named Theophilus, who was what we believe he's called most excellent in the book of Luke, and definitely the book of Acts, most excellent, which kind of the term is reserved for Roman government officials. So what we can deduce or believe is that Theophilus was a high influence, high affluence, high power, right, uh, Roman official, who, every single day of his life, was saying this statement. Jesus, I mean, Caesar is Lord. And he would have to. You know, he had a really great position, and it came with some really great opportunities. But he would have to, daily, if not hourly, or, you know, you know, a couple times a day, would have to actually make this statement that Caesar, a human, was Lord, a deity, right? And so, as you can imagine, he was suspicious of that. And he understands that there were things he had to do to get the benefits that he needed to get. But he was like, ah, oh, this, this feels a little bit broken and dirty. You know what that's like? I'm not really sure, but I feel like I have to bow my knee to a man who I don't really think I should bow my knee to, but I don't really know what to do. And at this time, he was hearing all about this, this movement of these Little bitty Christians, as they're called. Christians is where the term came from. It was a pejorative. These tiny little humans that were following around this homeless guy who actually said he was God, Jesus. He said he was God. And he said that he came to bring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, to earth. Right? He, he made those statements. In fact, they were such offensive statements that he said he was God, he was the son of God, and that he came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And they were so offensive that the Roman officials, the Jewish, the religious people, and the government people decide to murder him. They bring up him on charges. They find him guilty of blasphemy against God himself. And he's like, I'm God's son. They put him up on a Roman cross. They strip him naked and they brutally murder him. And then they put him in the ground. And all of his little tiny Christians that were following him are devastated. But then, then, then. A couple days later, that's why Easter is such a big deal. That's actually why we worship on Sundays and not the Sabbath on Saturdays. Because it's such a big deal 2,000 years ago. Jesus actually defeated death and came back to life and spent 40 days walking with his disciples, sharing with him his plans of bringing this kingdom of God to earth, to usher it in. And that is the big aha of the whole gospel of Luke, is that the kingdom of heaven, this heaven isn't something you pray or pray and one day you get beamed up into. What Jesus actually came to do was bring heaven to you and I now. Like so profound that he came to actually usher it in that you can actually experience the joy of everything that heaven has right now regardless of the circumstances around you, regardless of the persecution that could come, regardless of those things, you experience heaven. And these first century disciples started experiencing it, and Theophilus started taking notice. And he's like, these guys, they keep, they literally are losing their life, but they're walking in, declaring this peace and joy and hope amidst all this sorrow. And he's going, is that why they keep saying Jesus is Lord? Is this real? So he hires a doctor turned basically investigative journalist. And he goes, would you go and research whether or not I can have certainty about this guy named Jesus? So Luke goes and compiles all the written documents he can find. That's other uh, uh, scriptures from the Old Testament and the Gospel of Matthew and Gospel of Mark. He went and gathered as many of like the deeds and genealogies he could find in the Greek and Roman world. And uh, then he went and listened to all the local rabbis and pastors 
all the oral traditions. And what's crazy is he went and sat down with many, if not most, of the first century eyewitnesses. Meaning he went and sat with the shepherds. He sat with the disciples. He sat with Jesus' mom, Mary. And he took note of all this stuff. And he compiled it, he tells us, in the beginning of Luke. And he puts it together in an orderly fashion. In Luke chapter 1, verse 4 is the thesis of the whole thing. And he says this. I write these things so that you can have certainty of the things you've been taught. A year ago, back last June, it certainly seemed like it was a world of chaos. Really much hasn't changed there. And I remember going, oh, Lord, it'd be so good to have certainty. And so we've been spending a year trying to have some certainty about the things that Jesus has taught. And I already told you this, what Jesus came to teach about was the kingdom of God. So each and every week, we've been opening the scriptures trying to go, God, what does it look like to live in your kingdom? What does it look like to call you Lord and not Caesar or not, you know, money or whatever else it is that we put in our life at that highest level and place? And so then over the last last 10 weeks now, we've tried to put very practical steps of here's a step you can take in the kingdom of God. So if you're brand new to this really, really good news today, you can take that first step, that first right step right here into the kingdom of God, right? Have you been with us a while? You got another step you get to take today. And so let me just catch you up to speed with where we've been and what steps we're taking today. Again, we're writing in cursive because all of you should learn how to write in cursive, right? There we go. Okay, sorry for the hard-to-read font, but here it is. And so what we saw is Jesus has now been teaching uh, this kind of long sermon and object lesson to a very diverse group. We've got a lot of religious people, which, by the way, we've been defining religion as man's attempt to either get back to God or become their own God. In my, my opinion, religion is not a positive term, right? Religion is about this performance art, which Jesus kind of— declared last week as a kind of a fool's errand. So Jesus is, uh, has his little disciples. These are the tiny Christians following him everywhere. And then he's got this big group of religious people. They're called Pharisees. Those are like the churchgoers. And the, then, the, then the scribes, those are like the pastors leading these churchgoers and telling them they should perform well, pay their money, their temple taxes, do all the right stuff, slaughter the right animals, and then finally God might be happy with them. And so Jesus comes to kind of rebuke that teaching that somehow your performance is what makes Jesus love you. And the big idea of Jesus' kingdom is there is nothing you could ever do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less because it's not about your performance. The goal of the gospel, the goal of Jesus showing up here and bringing his kingdom, you got to hear this, is that you and him would be together forever. That's why we love this baptism moment when we get to go, oh, the Lord wants you to be with him forever. Ah, you've discovered that the Lord wants you to be with him forever. You've discovered that it's not about your performance because you cannot perform well enough. There's not enough checklist options. There's not enough rules and laws of the Old Testament you can follow to make God happy with you, love you more. And there's actually 613 laws written throughout the scriptures. And none of those following them will be enough. In fact, the big idea of why God gave us all these rules was to finally convince you that you cannot perform well enough. The reason that God puts this piece of fruit in the garden for Adam and Eve is not because he's this mean, nana-nana, boo-boo God, but because he wanted them to come to the conclusion that they were not that good on their own and they needed a Savior. The purpose for the fruit hanging in the tree was the point to Jesus. Got it? So finally, Jesus shows up and he's inviting these people in to trust him and trust him. But the problem is there are a lot of roadblocks. And at first glance, the roadblocks seem to be religious performance. Oh, but there's a lot more. So Jesus is teaching these folks and their disciples who are breathing it in going, oh, this is exactly what we need to do. Tell us what the next right step is. And then there's some religious people going, seething and so frustrated. And last week we saw this guy literally interrupt Jesus and say, Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance. And Jesus goes in this parable where he basically shows this idea that this guy literally kept trying to gather things, gather things, gather things and build bigger barns and build bigger barns. So finally, one day he could rest. It says, finally, today I'll relax and I'll eat, drink, and be merry. And what happened is Jesus literally says out loud in this parable, you fool, for this very life your soul will be required of you. Meaning you've worked your whole life in this rat race, in this current of this complicated culture to get to this place. And let's just be honest, the goal for most of us, at least in our world, probably many of us here, is actually such a weird one. We wouldn't put words on it this way, but when I give you the words, you go, I guess that is what it is. The goal for most of us is to arrive somewhere way off into the future safely at death. That's our goal. 
somewhere. Push the can down the road as far as possible. Have a safe and comfortable life as possible. And we all know that at some point it's looming and it's dooming, but arrive safely and comfortably at that spot. And so this guy believes that if he can gather more stuff, his life can be safer and more comfortable. And he goes, you fool. You've put your hope and your trust in these objects that will fail you. You've put your hope and trust in stuff that will end up in a landfill. You put all your hope in something that cannot sustain you and cannot satisfy you. And so we see Jesus tell this really, really, really rough story to the, all the people. And now what he's going to do is he's going to look back and focus on his disciples. Now, when you read this, kind of the first thought is he's talking to just 12 people. But at this point, Jesus has created a pretty big entourage. So there's hundreds of people trying to figure this out with Jesus following him. So he's got his 11 or 12 right there with him. He's got Peter, James, and John. Those are kind of his trusted few. But there's a lot of other people leaning in going, Jesus, would you tell us what we need to do? And what we saw last week as a choice was, okay, if God's goal isn't to give us things so that we'd be satisfied, what's the purpose of his blessings? And what we see all the way back to the Old Testament with Abraham, God says, I'm going to bless you that, so that you can be a blessing to others. The whole idea that, of course, God wants to give you good things. He's a good father. He's a good, good father. But at the end of the day, his goal isn't just to make you satisfied in the gift that he's given you. The goal is he has given you these things so that they can run in you and then overflow out of you and through you. And so we kind of looked at this option of, do you want to be a container? Do you want to just be gathering all these things and just kind of fill them up and become this obese religious follower just sucked in all the gifts to the part where you're kind of waddling around with no real exit strategy for these things? And we all know what it looks like to be completely backed up, right? And so he's going, you can live this way, but man, just to hoard and gather, or you can live a different way. Well, you can allow these gifts that I'm giving you to go in you and then through you. So he looked at the opportunities that, hey, you can continue to try to be a container. But why in the girl, world would God bless you with more if you're just going to hoard it and misuse it? Or you can look at being a conduit so that it can go through you. Now, last week, the middle school came in at the end to do communion with, you, with us, and my son came in, and he was completely confused by this because we get to lunch, and he's like, Dad, I didn't really understand. I kind of understood, but I don't know the difference between a, condu- I mean, a, a container and a condiment. Why are you talking about a condiment, right? And I'm like, so anyway, conduit, something that goes through. It's the idea that the kingdom of God is supposed to land in you and go through you, which means we got work to do, and Jesus is going to double down on this idea, and we got some new choices today, and we've been working with alliteration for a while, and so you get to choose fear. You don't want to do that, or freedom. I would suggest freedom, so we're going to talk about how to get that. And you get to choose uh, worship. That This is really, really good hope over worry, because what we're actually looking at is two things. We're looking at fear, and we're looking at anxiety, okay? It's all over our world, and I really do believe if you're brand new to this Christian thing, brand new to the church, it's going to be so, so helpful. Let me, so fear, 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 this thing that controls our minds, then controls our bodies, and then anxiety, the manifestation of fear in our body. Got it? So fear, this thing that controls us, and the manifestation of that thing in our body, which is anxiety, right? So we're going to look at how to operate, walk away from fear into freedom. How are we going to walk away from worry by worshiping? And what he's going to do is he's going to set our eyes on some weird stuff here. Like, this is so different than what any other... uh, Mind, whatever any other philosopher would point at. And so this is so profound. And when these guys hear it for the first time, and I hope you'll re- hear it in the same way, this is like revolutionary, what he's about to say. And here's kind of the big idea. He's going to talk about their stuff. And he's going to say, my words here, not his, your s- stress is synced to your stuff. Your stress, I wasn't use the word connected, but since we're in the alliteration theme, your stress is synced to your stuff. If you want to know why you're so stressed, it's so weird, it's so weird, it's so weird, but it's how it works. So your stress is synced to yourself. And so we're going to see what that looks like today. It's a big idea. Your stress is synced to your stuff. And so we're going to talk about fear. But before I open the scriptures in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 22, let me just uh, kind of tell you where I think fear comes from. Um, probably three places. Yeah, you can see if you, you have the same issues. And they're all kind of, I mean, there's three reasons that we have fear. Here, here's the first one. Fear is about not getting what we want, right? Never getting married, never having that child, never being loved or affirmed by your dad or mom, never being recognized, right? That, that idea that fear comes from this place of not getting what we want. Or second one, 
getting what we want and losing it? Have you had this moment? I've had this moment where I'm just enjoying my family, like just enjoying it, like laughing. We were playing a a card game the other day, and my, my youngest, Sophie, was just like, cackling so hard and it was just like this beautiful moment I hate card games like oh my goodness they just go so slow and I'm always just like could you go could you go it's so terrible I'm not very good at these things but just for a moment I was really really enjoying it and then all of a sudden that whisper came into me and go they're gonna be old soon they're gonna be old soon right like I'm in the middle of this great moment and in that moment there's this whisper and all of a sudden it's not about not getting what I want this is what I want but losing the things that we want right? Oh, you're going to lose that house. That savings is about to go away. That spouse is not going to be happy with you. They're going to die. Whatever it is, this fear, one, is not going to do what you want, but a bigger one a lot of times is actually getting what you want and then losing it. And then the third one, we know this, is getting what you don't want. Got me? So not getting what you want, losing what you wanted, getting what you want and losing it. And the third one is actually getting what you don't want, right? Um, A divorce, cancer, uh, termination slip, right? Those pretty big things of not getting, getting what you don't want. And so Jesus, so gracious, is going to look at some people and speak directly to your fears. If you've got some fears of not getting, what you, uh, not getting what you want, losing what you already have gotten, or uh, getting what you don't want today will be really, really helpful. So let's see what Jesus does. He's going, there's some fear, and the way that manifests in your life is going to be anxiety. So fear is in your brain, and, and the way it plays out is anxiety. And so here, let's see how this happens. Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Jesus is still in the same exact conversation we've been in for weeks now. One little conversation, and now he's going to, after correcting them on this parable, on you fool for your very life, your souls may be required of you, he goes back to the disciples, and he offers some teaching. This is what he says. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Thanks, Jesus. That's really helpful. As long as you tell me not to be anxious. I'll, oh, there you go. I'll just shut it down, right? Do not be anxious about your life. And then he goes to a couple places. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. So you got to understand, it's a little bit different time. Their needs were a little bit more basic than ours. They weren't worried about internet access right? They weren't worried about 5G or 4G or, oh, 3G, right? And it's so interesting to think about it that way. They weren't worried about air conditioning. One of the real interesting things that's happened for us as it comes to um, modern technology, you know, really one of the craziest things is the way that you live is better than kings lived a thousand years ago. They didn't have microwaves, they had to actually bring a show to them. They couldn't take a little remote, push it, and come up on your wall. And that, that little show gets bigger and bigger every single Christmas, doesn't it? Black Friday, those, the, the TV is just upgrade, upgrade, right? So these things, right? So they, those are a little bit more basic. So he's going to address some important things like food. They were hungry. Clothing. Uh, there's a scarcity of clothing, particularly nice clothing. So these are pretty big things that they would have wanted to deal with. So Jesus is going to go, don't be anxious, and he's going to highlight two things. Your greatest needs, food and clothing. And by the way, Jesus, a little bit later in this talk, is going to go, and your father knows that you need these things. So he's not discounting these things. He's not saying, shame on you for wanting food. Shame on you for wanting clothing, right? This is not shame. This is not a sin to want those things. And where it gets interesting is because now we have air conditioning. Now all of a sudden, you, you, your air conditioning goes out, and now you can be angry and bitter, Anger and bitterness can be a sin, right? Because now you're discontent. What's so interesting is 200 years ago, those people had less sins because they couldn't, they could, be, they could be hot, right? But they didn't know any better. You're so lucky we get to know better. And now we get to be discontent and frustrated with our modern technology. So we have more things to be angry and discontent and bitter about, which is more things to be rooted in it. So he's going to, uh, you know, address some very specific needs. I promise it will, it's very, very practical for us today. One of the things I want you to remember is every single week as we open this, these scriptures, while written by a human, Luke, are actually inspired and written through God himself through his Holy Spirit. And they are both timeless and timely. Meaning, they were written specifically to a group of people in the first century, first Theophilus and these first century Christians to help them live. These words were specific to the practice of them being able to make the next right choice. And yet, they're timeless. Meaning, 2,000 years. This is so profound. And on August 8th, he knew that we would open these scriptures. As Luke was writing them, the Holy Spirit was inspiring him. As he was doing that, he knew, this is so profound to me, that you and I 
would encounter these words today. Jesus actually tells us this through the prophet Isaiah, that his word never returns void. And so this is timeless, meaning this is not just to Theophilus. This little teaching that Jesus offers is not just to those disciples. He has your mind and your name on his heart as he writes these things. And he certainly hopes you hear, the, you hear these and respond accordingly. So he's going to address this. And that's what he says first. And you go, okay, well, that's not very helpful. He just tells us another thing not to do, right? No, this is really interesting. He's going he's to tell us something else not to do. I told you there are 613 different kind of commands of, you know, words, laws in the Old Testament. But the one that was the most used, you ready for this? Fear not fear not. So he's going to attach it to fear being really at the highest level of those things. By the way, cute little trivia. There's actually, uh, if you read throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, fear not shows up exactly 365 times. You do with that what you want. 365 times these words, fear not, show up. Certainly seems like the Holy Spirit may have known that you needed those words every single day of the year. So maybe you're going, I don't know what to do with the Bible. Just open up and start reading about the fear nots. Uh, you start in Joshua, really, really uh, a pretty neat passage of that. But anyway, uh, so fear not, fear not, fear not. So we're going to see that. He's going to tell them not to be anxious. And then he says this, verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, some of you are foodies. So this is not, not offensive, but uh, challenging to you. Uh, to me, food is a commodity, right? You can judge me for it. I will leave here. I will go to 7-Eleven. I will get a soda. They've been out of that Mountain Dew for a while. I have filled out the comment cards. Not very happy about it. And y'all are judging me for it. Look, it's not that bad for you. It doesn't have sugar in it. It has aspartame. See? So, yeah, you hear that? Man, look at that judgment. Uh, and so then I will go over to the little rollers, and I will get two hot dogs. I don't get the buns. I'm healthy. And I'll take the two hot dogs, and I'll put them in a bag, and I'll go and I'll buy them. And before I get back to work, both those hot dogs will be gone pure utility. I've got like 800 calories in that moment, and I'm ready to go again. So food is not like of high value. I like ice cream. I used to like macaroni and cheese, but I like my waistline, and so that's getting really, really complicated for me. But I, so food is not like really, really high value. But for many of us, food is our thing, right? And for me at a time, I think it's become a utility because for a time, it wasn't a utility. It was a comfort. When I couldn't sleep, it was me and Ben and Jerry's in Sports Center at 3 a.m., right? I would just sit there, and I would eat a couple pints of it, right? Or, uh, so I just would eat and eat and eat ice cream, right? Because it was just, I don't even know why. It wasn't like, I was like, oh, this makes me feel so much better. It just was this natural response. So when you see Jesus address this in, you know, verse 23 here, he's probably addressing starvation. Like food as a scarcity for most of these people. But timely and timeless, it is not a scarcity for most of us. It's actually... Uh, Something that we can get in abundance. And boy, do we. Right? So this thing, he's going, look, it, it, it's so simple, and I'm not, I don't want to spend much time on food, but this idea that somehow we have leaned into those things to either provide us comfort, or for most of us, just provide us security. Just be honest. I mean, this is not, again, this isn't, this isn't judgment. We'll walk through it. Jesus is going to offer some really helpful stuff. But how many of you feel real comfort in a full pantry? Or a full freezer? Some of you get like a half cow or a whole cow. You know what I'm talking about? That's what we do when we put it in the freezer. There is something about, I, mean, I kid you not, loading that thing into the freezer, right? Just loading and going, you know, when I'm, I just feel this security somehow. That, okay, I'll be able to eat red meat for the next six months, even if no one else gets to, right? This idea, that's what we literally have generators at our house to protect my red meat. So messed up, right? And again, I tell you, food is a utility for me. And yet, so for many of us, you got this, this thing with food. And so he's talking to a group of people who didn't have an abundance. It was scarce. And so they were trying to hoard and figure it out. And so much of their thoughts went to, how am I going to feed my family today? Right? So interesting. And so he says, don't worry about the food. That, uh, you, uh, for life is more than food. He's going, it's more than this. There's something bigger than this. And more than clothing. So this is interesting. A little bit more for us today. Again, timeless, timely. But for them, this again would have been scarcity. Particularly nice clothes. Any kind of clothes with like color in them. Not something they would do. And have you noticed how this works in our world? Like the trends. Like, it seems like every three months, six months, there's got to be a new kind of wardrobe thing, right? Like, for you moms, you were wearing skinny jeans. Apparently, you can go back to mom jeans now, and skinny jeans are out, and you did the side part. You can't do that anymore. It's the middle part, 
right? That's just what's happened. And so this ever, like this evolution was so interesting. It's like all the clothes I wore in high school, they, they would all be perfect now. So just hold on to your stuff and you're going to be fine. But you see, here we are holding on to our stuff in preparation for the next season, the next phase. Why in the world are there trends? Like, why can't we just wear the same thing every day? Why? Our Amish friends do it. Right? Because there's something in this where this whisper is telling you that your value or your security or your, you know, influence comes from what you wear. So Jesus is addressing this to some people and going, hey, life is more than what's in your closet and what's in your pantry. And you're like, of course, life is more than what's in my closet and my pantry because it's also in my bank account. Don't worry. Jesus is going to address that next. Let's keep going. This is what it says. Consider the ravens. This is so funny. Uh, they neither sow, sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? This is so interesting because some of the different ways Jesus teaches this, it says birds of the air, right? And so you're like, oh, so pretty birds. But this one's a little bit more specific. And almost always, like if I'm reading this or if I'm reading um, the story of Elijah where he's out in the wilderness and he's going, well, with me, my life is so bad, and God brings him food. You know what he brings it in the food with? Ravens, and I just always poke because you're Eagles fans, and you know, just have a, you know, you have a rough life, right? And so I'm like, you notice God used ravens, not eagles. Ha, 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 ha. And you're like, oh, 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 that's really funny. Really funny. Yeah, yeah, can we get a new pastor or whatever that is, right? Real funny. But what's interesting here is Jesus specifically, so you're Eagles fans, you're going to like this. Jesus actually uses ravens here. Not eagles, not hummingbirds, not a pretty bird. He's actually going to use a bird that throughout for centuries, maybe millennia, has been kind of connected to death. Death. These are scavengers. These are dirty, scary birds. These are the kind of birds that you can buy at Hobby Lobby because it's like the scariest thing they sell for Halloween, right? And so like birds, birds, ravens. So he's going to use a raven and he's going to go look at those dirty, dirty Dirty birds. Can I get an amen, Eagles fans, right? Dirty birds. Those dirty, broken scavengers, right? That's what he's going to say. And so they're hearing this, and they're like, oh, the ravens, they're so pretty. They're like, those birds are disgusting. They follow death, and they leave a mess on our heads. That's all they do. And so he's going to say, consider these ravens. They neither sow, meaning they don't plant food. Like you're trying to plant food to prepare, right? It's a little different for us. For us, we think about it in terms of our pantry. For them, they think about it in terms of what they put in the ground to eventually, you know, reap, right? Uh, and so they neither sow nor reap. They don't put food into the ground, and they don't take food out of the ground. But they have neither storehouse nor barn. They're not storing this stuff up. And yet, hear this. God feeds them these dirty, nasty birds. God feeds. God feeds. God has created a system by which those ravens are fed. And they actually clean up the brokenness of our world. God created this in a way that he feeds them. And he says they don't even work on it. And he says this afterwards. You ready? Oh, of, of how much more value are you than the birds? Let me just remind you, value, this word, we know this, you're smart, is uh, what someone is willing to pay for something. Right now, your house is more valuable than it should be because of the messiness of our market. Your used car is more than it should be because of the messiness of the car market and chip sensors and everything else. So your value of your car, if you've got a, a used car, probably has gone up at least 20%, if not 50 to 100% in the last year. And the only reason it has isn't because your car got better. It wasn't because you added new bells and whistles to it. You didn't put a lift kit on that Taurus. You know, it's, the, it's not those things. The reason your car got more valuable is because people are willing to pay more, right? So value is completely and ultimately connected to what someone's willing to pay. That's what an appraisal does. It goes, what's someone willing to pay? What have they pray, paid for this in the past, the recent past? And so let me just remind you, your value then is what someone is willing to pay for you. So what is someone willing to pay for you? And I'm not talking about the trafficking sense. I'm talking about God and his great love sent his son, the God of the universe, in flesh, Jesus, onto this planet. And it says the wages of your sin, that was the actual cost of your, like your bill that was due. It wasn't like you get like, ah, someone wants to pay for you. It's like, no, you owe money at the end of the month. The wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through what? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Your value, you gotta hear this. That's what I'm saying. God's greatest goal is for you and him to be together forever. How do I know that? Because that's what he paid 
the most for. Your value is the God of the universe's death. The king of the world sacrificed himself. So he's going, are you not more valuable than these dirty, broken Baltimore Ravens? Verse 25. And which of you, (laughs) so good, so good. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? So he's going to offer some really good logical things, and you're like, okay, whatever. Like some of them, it says, see the birds of the air, see the lilies of the field. You know, you're going to see those different things, and it gets, it's going to say the lilies again, but this is the one I love. I love this. This is just Jesus, just cutting through the thick of it and just being very, very logical. Okay, okay, you don't believe this. You don't think he loves me more than the birds, whatever. Okay, let's just be honest then. All that you're worrying about right now, your value, your security, what are you actually gaining right now from worrying about it? love this. I'll tell you this. Every time this word anxiety comes up, you have to hear it. Seth, uh, Seth Godin, who is a brilliant marketer. Uh, I think he's Jewish, not a Christian, but brilliant, brilliant marketer. And he gives the best definition I've ever seen for anxiety, and it's this. Experiencing failure in advance. Experiencing failure in advance. And guess what? I know, when, he, when I read that, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I do. Every single time. You know what I do? I know, you know what I do when things get hard? I come up with a worst case scenario in my head. I don't know why I do it, but I do. Worst case scenario in my head. And then I come up with a plan to deal with that worst case scenario. Any of you like that? So, oh goodness, what happens if I lose my job? Okay, let me go crank. Let me go see exactly how much money is in my savings. Let's figure out how long it is for, before you get foreclosed on. Let me go see exactly what my credit limits are. I don't know if you do that. Or go to the doctor and they find something and you go home and you don't know what it is yet and you're waiting, waiting, running, and you are making sure your will's in place. Right? You're leaving notes. You're taking some more time to train your kids on certain things. Why? Because you are planning in advance for something you don't know is actually coming yet. Right? And so this is what's so messed up. Over and over again, we experience so much heartache and hardship and pain for things that never, ever come true. And many times, the only reason they actually do come true is because you've become a false prophet and focus so much on it. You have made that false prophecy a true prophecy, right? Many of us, if not most of us, almost all of us, operate in this false prophecy where over and over again we prophesy the future like we have the power and then come up with a plan to deal with the future, right? And so anxiety is just failing in advance. He goes, okay, 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 which of you? (laughs) By doing all that work, can add a single hour to your lifespan. So let's think about this. Let's think about the ultimate goal. Remember the ultimate goal for most people is, is to arrive somewhere way off in the future safely at death. That's the big goal of life. And he's going, life is more than that, right? The kingdom of God goes, your soul will not die. So this is, throw that off the table, right? You will, you will never, ever die. Your soul will be alive forever, right? That's why when you get to the end of your age, you go, man, that went so fast. Why? Because your soul wasn't meant for 80 years. Right? And so he's going, which of you, if the whole goal, kicking the road down the can down the road, is to get someplace safe at death, somewhere comfortable, way off in the future, which of you today, by worrying about it, can make that happen? Which of you? So Jesus offers this very logical thing going, why in the world have we, you and I, spent so much time meddling in things that we're not in control of? You see what he's saying here? He's saying there are things you're actually not in control of. And for us, that's the, (laughs) boy, is that a big fear. Big fear, right? Being out of control. For me, that's why I want the pantry stocked. That's why I want the closet filled. Like, how many of you have gone and thought, I haven't worn that shirt in three years, but there might come a day where I might need to wear that. I got a purple tuxedo shirt in my closet. I cannot come up with a good reason that I'll ever need to wear a purple tuxedo shirt, but if that day ever comes, I'll be ready right? You see the craziness of that. So I'm, I'm, I am, because <laughs> I just need to be in control of that moment in the near future or the far future, wherever it is, I just want to be ready. And all my time and energy is spent thinking about that possibility that probably will never happen. And he goes, which of you can add a single hour, single minute, single second of your life? And life is more than these things. So, okay, what do you do? Now watch what he says next. If then you're not able to do a small thing as that. This is so beautiful. He's now going to define creating time, an hour, as a very small thing. Now, for you and I, that's a really big thing. Now, I understand, like, I'm a huge Georgia Bulldogs fan, right? And so that's to us professional football. I don't care about the professional stuff. We pay our college athletes plenty of money to make them professional in the South. And so they have just built this $80 million practice facility. 
glorious, right? It's, it, I have no doubt it is what heaven is going to look like, right? And so this is a big, beautiful place. And they're asking Kirby Smart, the coach, why he was building this big thing, $80 million. And you know what his solution was? He wanted to cut out 30 hours of waste in his player's time. Now, I have no doubt he wants to do something with that 38 minutes, right? But because they're traveling all over campus, he wanted to bring everything to one spot. Why? Because he understood how valuable time was. And in his mind, if he does that, spends $80 million, then perhaps he can give those kids 30 minutes back. He's not really creating more time, but boy, have they spent $80 million trying to build some margin in time. And so which of you, maybe you've built some margin in your life, but which of you have actually added time? the calendar. I'm talking about spoke it into existence. And Jesus goes, if you're not able to do that, then watch this. Go, go Jesus. One more minute, right? Like literally in the Old Testament, Joshua goes, God, we need you to stop the sun. He goes, done. Right? He literally holds the sun still. I don't understand what it did to science. I don't understand what it did to I have no idea. But he's going, if you can't do this little thing, as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Look, if you're not in control of that, what would it look like not to choose fear. And instead, choose the freedom of going up, moratorium on that. I can't think about that. I can't fix it. Nope, I don't know what the future holds. Nope, I can't even think about that. I mean, I can't fix it. I mean, the only thing I've been given, the only thing I've been entrusted to is this moment right here. So why in the world to think about those moments when right here there's moments for me to think about? What would it look like for you and I to operate in the freedom of that? Like, what would it look like to actually be present in those moments? What would it look like not to read the news and come up with all the crazy solutions for what's going to happen to your kids and masks and school in a couple months? And I understand that that is such fear-inducing. I can't wait to tell you about this prayer and worship service we're going to have specifically to prepare our year for the school with students and families and teachers and administrators. We're going to bring everybody together as a family, and we're going to pray and go, God, we are not in control. But what would it look like for us to be able to breathe and go, God really does see this. God did know that your children alive in 2021. God did allow exactly what's happening around us because he knew that he was in charge and he was Lord and he had a plan. Your kids were an accident, you were an accident, and 2021 was not an accident. God is bending and shaping all this. So what would it look like to go, I can't fix that. What would the freedom look like? And he's going to go back and he says this again. Consider the lilies, how they grow. So he's talked about food. Now he's going to point back to the clothing. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil, that means, nor spin. That literally means they don't grow weary. They're not spinning in anxiety, right? They don't do any of those things. They just grow, right? They neither toil nor uh, spin. Why? And so it says, uh, uh, yeah, I tell you, even Solomon, all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So he's going to point to this really fashionable guy in the Old Testament. David's son builds the, king, uh, the temple. Solomon had really, really good fashion sense, and he had lots and lots of closet space, right? And he goes, Solomon in all of his splendor doesn't look as good as those. So he's going to point to this lily, and I'm not a big lily fan. Many of you are. The thing that I love about a lily, though, is it always is telling me spring is coming. You know, you see them pop up, and you're like, oh, okay, this winter's over, Right? You start seeing them pop up, and there's just this relief, and he's going, you see those lilies? May they remind you that they are beautiful, and I created them. I spoke them into existence, and yet I didn't die for them. You see, I didn't, I, I didn't go to the cross for those lilies. Right? So you see them, they're beautiful, but they should just be a reminder. The lilies should just be a reminder. Those birds of the air should just be a reminder that you are far more valued and far more loved, and if I'm going to clothe them and I'm going to feed them, do you think I will abandon you? Then he says this. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven. Look, guys, this is just trash. Every single bit of your yard at some point will be cut up and put into a burn pile. And if God is going to take care of that and in the field today, in the trash, thrown in the oven tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? And then he says something really, really important. You get this. Oh, you of little faith. This is really neat. Jesus actually, I don't know if he makes up a word, but this is the only place in the scriptures that, I mean, you don't see him anywhere else other than Jesus speaking this word. He actually takes these two words, this compound word, and puts them together. The oligos, which means little or few. Pistos, which means faithful. So he's actually going to say, and this is so important, that you who have very little faithfulness, you who have placed very little of your trust in me. You get it? So he's saying, here's the thing, guys. They're like, oh, you have little faith. He's going, there's been some places. Like, and I did this as a second grader. I prayed some prayer because the preacher preached on stage and told me I was going to hell. I did not want to go to that place. It did not sound nice. And so I thought, as a seven, eight-year-old, I walked down the aisle and said, what do I need to do not to go there? 
And he says, well, you have to ask Jesus into your heart. And I looked down, I thought, my heart's kind of tiny, but if that's what you want me to do, okay, I guess I'll try this. It's going to get really uncomfortable in here, right? And so I prayed a prayer. He announced it, and then every single person came down and shook my hand. This was in 1989. They did not have that little nice hand sanitizer right next to you, right? All these people, right? And the only thing I did is I little faith. I just put a little bit of my trust into my death because I didn't want to go burn in hell. Right? And so this, this interesting thing is this kind of how it begins with the disciples. They go, okay, I guess I'm going to follow you, which means I'm going to leave everything. But one day I'm going to take a bigger step into this whole idea of this progressive sanctification that happens. So there's these two words really, really important for you to understand. One's called positional holiness. That is the minute you trust Jesus, God sees you as saved and loved and covered by Jesus' sin right? So the minute you go, Jesus, I believe you died for me, and you open up that gift, God goes, done. I see you as who you're going to be. I see you through my son, Jesus, and you will never, ever be able to do anything that will make God love you any more or any less. He sees you in that way. And yet, as we know, if you've walked in this for a little while, as I've walked in this for a while, every single day you get this opportunity to grow a little bit more in your faith in him. You get to put a little bit more of your trust in him. So I began to put trust into my eternity because obviously I couldn't control that. And then at some point I began to put trust into my relationships because I couldn't control those. Boy, is I messing those up. Then I began to put trust into my occupation because, boy, I couldn't even do that one right, right? Then I began to put trust in my kids because when your wife is pregnant and you can't do anything at all, you go, God, I certainly hope you can do something, right? I began to start putting more trust. Then finally, I started to put trust in God in my finances and going, God, I can't even manage these, right? right? There's these little steps. What Jesus is saying to these people is, oh, you just have not taken very many steps. You've just started to listen on you of little faith. What would it look like for those places that you have placed fear? For those to be places that you would step in to faith. So he's going to go, look, look, look. There's some freedom for you. But the freedom doesn't come until you actually stop operating this little faith. And so you go, what are the places that you haven't actually trusted Jesus faithfully? Really, really simple rubric. What parts of your life are you afraid of? What parts of your life are in chaos? Your finances in chaos? Again, <laughs> this church doesn't want your money. Right there, and, and I would say God doesn't want your money. That's the good news. The bad news is he wants a lot more than that. Right? So your finances in chaos. Is your marriage in chaos? Is your family in chaos? Is your job in chaos? I'd say, where do you operate with such fear and anxiety? And I would go, I double dog dare you to pause and ask the Lord, God, is this a place where I'm not to put my faith in you? So he tells them in these moments, oh, you of little faith, you have this anxiety and fear. And the reason you have this anxiety and fear is because you have not placed yourself your f- in, into me. You've not trusted me fully. And he continues. And then he says this, verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Hey, don't set your eyes on those things. That's the word seek means. Don't set your eyes on things. Don't set them. It won't do you any good. Don't set them on those things. Then he says this, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And you're going, wait, 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 but does Jesus want me to be lazy? Does Jesus not want me to work? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying, why would our focus be on food or clothes when our focus could be on Jesus who says he'll take care of those things? And so, obviously, if we're walking in the kingdom and we go, Jesus will take care of those things, you go, I just don't believe it. And I'll go, yeah, you have a little faith. Because we haven't practiced it, right? And do not seek what you are to eat and drink, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek these things. They're all seeking the resources. Now watch what he says here. So, so important. And, the, uh, and your father knows that you need them. So this isn't, you silly, silly kid. <laughs> You're hungry and you want food. Suck it up. Oh, you don't want to be naked. You want some clothes. No, he's not saying that. He's going, look, look. In the simplest level, your heavenly father knows that you need these things. So you got to make a decision. Do you trust him to provide those things? or not. And you go, well, what do I do with my time? Do I just sit there? Do I just go, okay, God, I'm going to sit here today, and I'm going to hope you drop some food in my lap? Do I sit here today, and I hope you tell me what sweater to wear? No, 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 watch what happens next. He goes, instead of sitting there and putting your eyes on food, or clothes, or comfort, or security, or affluence, or influence, or prestige, instead of putting your eyes here, he's going to tell us to direct our eyes somewhere else. This one goes, this is so profound, he's going to show us actually how we experience freedom. And he's going to go, instead, watch this. So, no, no, don't just sit there and be lazy. Instead, watch what he says. What you're to do is seek his kingdom. You'll see it in verse 31. Seek his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, no, 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 no. I'm not telling you you don't need food or clothing. I'm telling you your eyes are set on the wrong things. I'm telling you, you want to not live in this panic and worry and fear 
that's operating everywhere you go. Right? You've got to get off Twitter and stop reading the news and start focusing your mind on the kingdom and go, instead of focusing your worries on what information you can gather so you can make the best decisions, what would it look like to put your eyes on something else? I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm just saying you're not in control of them. So what are you in control of? What you look at. Instead, look at the kingdom. Put your eyes on the kingdom. And here's what he says. Do you believe him? And these things will be added unto you. He's not saying you're going to go hungry. He's not saying you're going to be a fool and be naked. He's literally saying to you, if you set your eyes on the kingdom, he'll take care of you. And so many of us are going, I'm not so sure about that. And I'm going, oh, no, wouldn't it be great if we just did this together? What would it look like if a whole church goes, we're just going to set our eyes on the kingdom? Nope, we're not going to worry about those things. We're going to set our eyes on the kingdom. We're not going to set our eyes on the kingdom. and go, okay, 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 how do we do that? How do we do that? Watch this. Verse 32, he says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, the first thing you got to do is change the way that you view God. He's a good father who only gives good gifts. You can set your eyes on the kingdom and trust that he's going to take care of the rest. You know, I know. Because my kids do not wake up and go, I don't know what we're going to do about the mortgage, dad. Dad, I, I mean, I just don't know what we're going to do. I mean, like that, it's, it's, it's over $2,000. I mean, have you seen our property taxes these days? I mean, dad, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not real sure what we're going to do. All right, they don't go to my Julie and go, I'm not sure if we're going to eat this month. I mean, have you seen the bills, right? Like, of course they don't do that. Why? Because they have a good mother and a good father who loves them and is going to provide for them. So he goes, do you have little faith? Do you believe your heavenly father is better than you are as a father and provider? If so, then set your eyes on the kingdom. And you go, well, how do I know if I set my eyes on the kingdom? And oh, are you ready for it? Oh, here we go. I took 50 minutes to get here. And don't feel bad about it at all. Verse 33 sell your possessions. There it is. I want all of it. Bring it all, right? Oh, no. This is why I don't go to church. You see those people. They want my money, and I don't know what's going on with his hair. His hair looks funny, and he wants my money, right? You see, this is so, so terrible. Sell your possessions. Give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Because you want to know if you're in on this? Look at what you set your eyes off of and set your hands off of. And that word possessions there, so, 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 so neat. It's so, so, so important. It's literally going to be used as treasure later, and he's going to tell us treasure. That word treasure literally means the same word we get for thesaurus. Isn't that crazy? The word treasure and thesaurus are the same because it's a really terrible definition of the word thesaurus. It's just a storehouse or treasury of words. Got it? And so he's going, all those things that you've collected, remember I told you last week, you can go listen, all my Hot Wheels cars, all the things, all those things you've collected? What in the world are they for, Josh? And so what he says is sell your possessions and give to the needy. That word sell doesn't mean like go have a garage sale. It just means exchange. It exchange the things that you have stored up for things that you haven't stored up. So he's just going, do you really need all those clothes? Well, how do you, how do you show that you need those clothes? Well, you Look around at the kingdom and go, the kingdom of heaven, people should be clothed. Why do I have all this stuff that I'm storing? Why don't I go and share it? Do I really need all these, this food? Do I really need all this stuff? Like, if I really believe my heavenly father is it, shouldn't I look around and see the kingdom around me and shouldn't I go and participate in it? And you go, that seems really, really crazy. I know, but you know what else is crazy? Spending all your time worrying about what our country is going to be like in six months. You're in control of it? Can you change it? No, and Jesus is going, here's what you actually can participate in. You can actually go and exchange the things that are excess for you. You have things you don't need. And why don't you go and exchange them for the things you do need? God's grace and love and mercy and his hope. And he's going to go and sell those things because you are investing in the wrong thing. That's what I told you last week. It's a lot like going into a hotel room and going, I don't like this furniture. Oh man, these paintings are terrible. And going to some place and ripping out all the furniture and ripping out the countertops. Go, I like quartz. This is laminate, right? And going and changing all those. And the next day, checking out. He's going. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And go. Why? This seems so harsh. Why would I do this? And then he gives us this big crescendo. You ready? Four, verse thirty-four. For where your treasure, there's your possessions. That's a storehouse. I want you to see it as this massive warehouse of all your inventory. That's all your experiences. That's all your education. That's all your tangible items. That's your bank account. That's all your knowledge. That's all of everything. That's your family. That's everything that's entrusted to you. For what you've, where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. That word heart shows up 800 times in the scriptures. And it never, not even once, references this organ. He's saying, where you've placed your treasure, that is where the sense of who you are is. So, what I would challenge you to do as we think through this, oh, that's hard, right? I'm not telling you to bring your stuff up front. I'm not telling you to write a check. Again, our church doesn't want your money. But God has gifted you so many things because the, he wants it to invade your life and invade the kingdom. So how do you take what you've been given? You're not, you don't have to filter it through here. We don't need to launder it in terms of your tithes. Love for you to trust God with that. But how do you actually go and see the things you need? Take a literal inventory of what God's entrusted to you and then figure out how to exchange it in the kingdom for things that cannot be destroyed. Because that stuff, that trinket, it will end up in a landfill. That person you put all your hope and satisfaction in will one day fail you. And even if they don't, one day you'll fail them and they will not be able to forgive you in the way that you'll need them to forgive you because they cannot buy your ticket into heaven. So how do you live in the kingdom of God? You take parts of your life and you start to live in faith towards him. So maybe, maybe, maybe the next step is you just go, God, I just want to, I want to tackle that one thing. I'm ready to take one more step in faith. I just want to tackle that one thing. The one thing I'm going to tackle this week, God, is just my clothes. Like, why do I have all these things? God, is there a place that I can give them? And I'm not talking about your junk. Oh, maybe you need to tackle your food. Or maybe you need to tackle your calendar. God, I just need to look at all this stuff in my calendar, and I just want to set my eyes on the kingdom. What if I'm not set in the kingdom? Or maybe you need to tackle your family and go, why in the world have we gotten this far off course? What does it look like for you just to eat together and pray together and have a purpose together? I don't know what it is, but what is that thing that God has entrusted in your warehouse that he wants you to exchange it, set your eyes on it, because that is where your heart is. Where your heart is, that is where your treasure is. So how in the world do we go and give ourselves a different heart when we place ourselves with a different treasure? This is why Paul tells us, and the bands will come up and kind of prepare us for this. He tells us in Romans chapter 12, for 11 chapters, there is some harsh and brutal stuff. And he says, you are a sinner and you've enslaved yourself to your behavior, to your thoughts, and to your stuff. And you are a slave to sin. Jesus Christ came to free you from that. And then he says, in view of that mercy, here's his, here's his suggestion. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, for that is your spiritual act of worship. How do you overcome worry? Worship worship. We say that we believe Jesus is better. We say we've searched the whole world and found him to be better. And then we start to see all the parts of our life, all the painful parts of our life where God has taken and restoring and making them whole and new as we walk in the kingdom of God. And so as you take an inventory of your stuff, it's okay to take an inventory of the bad stuff too. He wants it all. So just to challenge you as we sing this song together to make these words your words and make your eyes look towards this kingdom that he's turning graves in the gardens. And so would you stand with me as we sing? and nothing, nothing compares to a relationship with our maker. Amen? Let's sing together. I've searched. I've searched the world. It couldn't fill me. A man's empty prayer Treasures that fade are never found. And you came along, put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied. Oh, 
this week seek his kingdom first and i'm going to play a blessing of you with the lord as you do that bless you and keep you will he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace may you walk in that blessing and peace this week as you walk in his kingdom love you guys can't wait to see you soon see you next week There's nothing
my joy You are my song You are the well The one I'm drawing from You are my refuge My whole life long Where else would I go? Surely my God is the strength of my 